This episode of The Next Big Idea contains explicit sexual content and may not be suitable for everyone. Springtime on a glassy river outside Boston. A coxswain keeps the rhythm as a boys' high school crew team runs through its drills. A sophomore named Cole is on the boat. He's tall and muscular with close-cropped, dirty blonde hair. He's keeping his mouth shut, learning the ropes. When practice is over, Cole showers with the team in the locker room. As the boys dress, a senior starts to brag. He says he's lured a sophomore girl into a relationship. Now she thinks the two of them are an item, but he's still hooking up with other girls behind her back. The bragging bothers Cole, and he decides to say something. He and a friend, also a sophomore, tell the senior what he's doing isn't cool. But the older kid just laughs at them. The next day, another teammate is ranting, vowing to get back at a bitch who dumped him. Again, Cole's friend speaks up, but this time, Cole stays silent. Over the next few weeks, the scene plays out again and again. A teammate starts trash-talking a girl, and Cole's friend bravely objects. Pretty soon, the friend's a pariah. The guys on the team won't even talk to him. They call him names, including derogatory terms for women's genitals and for gay men. Cole still keeps his mouth shut. He swallows his discomfort. But inside, a storm is brewing. He respects women and gay people. He also loves his bros. He wants to do the right thing, but he's desperate to fit in. And the conflict makes him miserable. One day, a journalist visits, a middle-aged woman old enough to be his mother. Cole agrees to talk. When he sits down with her, he finds himself opening up. He tells her he's torn between his conscience and his fear of being rejected by his friends. He says he's planning to go into the military where he knows the pressure to conform will be strong. I don't know what to do, he says. How do I make it so I don't have to choose? It turns out the journalist is looking for answers to just that kind of question. Her name is Peggy Orenstein, and she's writing a book on the dilemmas boys face when it comes to matters of sex. And who better to ask than the boys themselves? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, boys and sex. Over the past few years, the Me Too movement has forced us to come to terms with the worst aspects of male sexual behavior. And it's not just powerful older guys like Harvey Weinstein. We've also seen a parade of horrors involving high school and college kids from Steubenville, Ohio, to Stanford and Harvard. Everything from posting nude photos of female classmates online to outright rape and assault. But those awful incidents are hardly the norm. 
Most boys are just trying to find their way through a minefield of rules and expectations. I've got three sons. The oldest is 15. And as it happens, I was a boy once myself. I know how confusing it can be to read the signals and stand up to the pressures from your body, from your friends, from popular culture. Still, I can hardly imagine what it's like to be coming of age right now. My sons are growing up in a world where the rules of sex seem very different than they used to be, where hookups are routine, porn is everywhere, and what counts as consent can be hard to pin down. I'd love to know how to help them navigate this terrain, to help them be safe, to be comfortable in their own skins, and to be good sexual citizens. Maybe Peggy Orenstein can help. She set out to explore the world of boys after more than two decades of writing about girls in best-selling books like School Girls and Girls and Sex. Her latest is called Boys and Sex, and it's probably the deepest dive into the topic that any journalist has ever taken. Peggy spent more than two years interviewing boys and young men who talked with incredible openness and insight about their experiences. When I spoke with Peggy, we were both in coronavirus lockdown. She in the home she shares in Berkeley, California with her dog, Ginger, her husband, and their 16-year-old daughter, and me on Long Island with my wife and sons. Welcome, Peggy, to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I was struck reading your book that it's such a deeply empathetic and surprising anthropological journey. And it ends up being about so much more than sex. It's about masculinity, coming of age, gender roles, identity, human vulnerability. Yeah. I feel like it's a lens. And so often with sex, we tend to silo it off into this own separate realm where it is like its own thing and has nothing to do with anything else. But it is another way that we look at ourselves as humans and as citizens, as people who connect and all these different issues around gender, around power, can all be filtered through that lens. Well, you spent most of your career writing about girls. Familiar territory. You were a girl. You have a daughter. And to venture to this foreign continent of boys seems like a brave act. And you get that sense reading the book. I mean, it feels like brazen anthropology. You wander into this sort of what we think of as a quasi-hostile tribe of boys. (laughs) You dig into the most personal part of their lives. You spoke with, what, over 100 boys. Yeah. And you ask them questions that their parents, I can say this as a father, would be, I mean, I shouldn't have this response, but questions that I would be very hard-pressed to ask and probably questions that their peers would be terrified to ask. Yeah. What was the experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, so many of them would say they had never had a conversation like this um, with anybody. And and I think there is an aspect I've always felt as a journalist where it's like having a superhero cape in a way, like things that I would never ask anybody as Peggy the person, I will totally go there as Peggy the journalist without even blinking. Interesting. And it's kind of the wonderful thing about being a journalist. And I really, I mean, I was very resistant to doing this project, actually. And I had spent 25 years writing about girls and I had so many requests from parents and girls and boys themselves to look at boys that I started thinking, you know, at first I was like, well, it's somebody else's job. I think it's not mine. I'm a woman. I write about girls. And I also honestly was afraid that boys wouldn't talk to me. You know, I was I, I was afraid that I would have entire transcripts that consisted of, nope, uh-huh, you know? And that was one of the biggest surprises to me of, of doing this was how eager the boys were to talk and how insightful they were in narrating their own experience. And I think the truth is, is that nobody really ever does talk to boys. And so it was a real opportunity for them. On a practical level, can I ask, how did you find your interview subjects? 
Well, I had a lot of contacts from having done the girl book. And so there's always kind of like a designated cool teacher in a high school. So I always kind of went through the designated cool teachers, or I do a lot of speaking on campuses, high school and college campuses. And the girls from my girl book helped me. But it was curious to me that when I would go and speak and I would mention that I was doing a book on boys, parents would start, I I felt like boys were being flung at me. Hmm. Parents would give me their phone numbers, they'd give me their emails, they'd give me their Instagram accounts of their sons. Wow. And that did not happen when I was working on the girl book. And I think it was because they were having a hard time talking to their boys. And I think they were hoping that in addition to interviewing that I might do a little educating. And then another thing that was really interesting was that sometimes boys just got in touch with me. And I would get other boys that I interviewed, but if I was on a show like this and I would mention that I was doing a book on boys, Mm -hmm. I would get emails from boys around the country. They would just Hmm. want to talk. And among all these extraordinary stories that you heard, are there any particular ones that stand out that touched you or surprised you? Gosh, I always think a lot about Cole, who was kind of a, you know, a prototypical jockey looking boy. And when I first saw him, I thought, ugh, this is going to be a terrible interview. He just looked like exactly the boy who'd speak in monosyllables. (laughs) And he was going into the military and seemed very far on the guy's guy end of things. But he really surprised me. And we ended up having this really deeply engaged conversation. And one of the things that we talked a lot about was locker room talk, which, you know, obviously been in the news and is sort of the way that boys assert heterosexuality through their tales about dominating female bodies. And, you know, how do they talk? They don't like talk about making love. They talk about they hammer, they nail, they pound, they bang, they pipe that, they hit that, they tap. You know, it's like they went to a construction site not like they engaged in an act of intimacy. Sure. And so Cole, when he was a sophomore, an older guy started talking about a girl he knew in that sort of way. And he and a friend of his stepped up and tried to say something about it. And they got mocked and they got marginalized. And the next time somebody said something, Cole's friend continued to talk, but Cole didn't. Cole didn't say anything. And he said to me, I watched while the more my friend stepped up and the more I stepped back, the more the other guys stopped listening to him and they didn't seem to like him as much. And he lost all his social currency. And here I was with buckets of it left, but I wasn't spending it. And he looked at me with real pain in his eyes. And he said, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't know what to do because I don't want to have to choose between my dignity and these guys. And I thought so much about Cole as I traveled through the journey of writing about boys because Part of masculinity, Michael Thompson, who's a psychologist, has said that it's in the silence, it's silence in the face of cruelty and misogyny where boys learn to become men. Mm. And so I thought a lot, not only about what boys did say to me, but what they didn't or couldn't or wouldn't or shouldn't, you know, even when they knew that they ought to. I came of age in the 80s. And by comparison to my recollection of how adolescent boys talk, On the one hand, the boys you interviewed sounded pretty enlightened. They had egalitarian views about women. They had platonic female friends. But in other ways, they just seemed like complete throwbacks. They almost sounded like they were buying into a more extreme version of masculinity than I remember when I was a teenager. Yeah, that's right. What do you think is going on? Well, you know, I'm always really interested in contradictions as a writer. So when I was writing about girls, there was a lot around, on one hand, they were all leaning in and being leaders and taking advantage of the new girlhood. And on the other hand, in their private lives, they were falling down and they couldn't assert themselves and they were really defining themselves through appearance and all these different things that we know. And so 
it was as if we had layered all these new expectations on top of the old ones without getting rid of the old ones. Hmm. And so I think it shouldn't be really surprising in a lot of ways that boys were grappling with that too. So on one hand, yeah, the guys were, they saw girls as equal in the classroom and deserving of leadership and being on the playing field and professional opportunities and all of that. But when I would say, what's the ideal guy? Yeah, it was like they defaulted to 1955 and it was aggression, uh, dominance, wealth, athleticism, sex as status seeking, and the big one was emotional suppression. To what extent do you think that masculine, hyper-masculine behavior is something that the system that values that, it strikes me as one that girls very much participate in, and it's frankly their affection and their interest that validates those values. Yeah, I think it's absolutely a dynamic. There's no question about that. And, you know, boys would say to me sometimes, girls want you to be an asshole, and what am I supposed to do about that? And that's an issue to discuss with both boys and girls. And similarly, I think the whole dynamic that we expect boys to be moving the sexual encounter forward always is a problem, that all of that rests with boys, that girls are supposed to be. Well, the way that we conceptualize consent was we think of it as a series of pre-prescribed questions that a heterosexual boy asks a heterosexual mm, girl yep. to which she says yes or no, which is not really what we want. That's why at the very beginning of this conversation, you said the book is about so much more than sex. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's about a whole set of dynamics that we all are socialized into. And how do we, what do we need to do to shift those to make everybody's lives more expansive and everybody's relationships and connections more authentic and better for them? So you write about a boy code that trains guys to see masculinity in opposition to femininity, and it needs to be constantly policed. And you say a lot of the training and policing seems to happen in places like locker rooms and frat houses. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah, that's William Pollock's phrase, the boy code. Mm. And it looks at masculinity as in opposition and sometimes adversarial towards femininity. So yeah, it gets policed in these all-male environments and particularly around homophobic slurs. That was a real place where where you see that. And some of that too, again, had changed. Guys had gay male friends. And it was always interesting. Straight guys would always say to me, well, I would never call an actual gay person those words. And I'd be like, so that makes it okay. <laughs> but right. it was not about sexuality to them in a way. It was about policing masculinity. And it was what those homophobic slurs would, which could be leveled for anything, you know, like for, hmm. you know, dropping a pencil. I mean, anything. They kind of drew the lines of the man box, and it was very much like slut for girls in that it, it kept any challenge to that boy code at bay. And so I was really interested in how they used that. And one of my favorite examples was um, by a sociologist, C.J. Pasco, who looked at the hashtag no homo on Twitter, mm -hmm. and he, she looked at over a thousand tweets and how guys were using that. And she said, yeah, it was a joke. It was a homophobic slur, but they were also using it as a shield and a way to protect themselves when they were expressing any level of affection or just like normal human connection. So they would say things like, I miss you, dude. We should get together more often. Hashtag no homo. Like anything that would go to that emotional place, you had to put that deflective shield up so that you would preserve your masculinity. So boys are performing for other boys and trying to adhere to codes and expectations that even the enforcers only vaguely understand. Peggy Ornstein says you can see the confusion play out in what's come to be known as hookup culture. To those of us on the outside, hookup culture may seem to be all about easy pleasure and casual sex, but to the boys and girls who are living it, it's not casual at all. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. When she was researching her book, Boys and Sex, Peggy Ornstein spent a lot of time exploring the strange world known as hookup culture. What she found was a place where boys and girls were getting wasted and often getting naked, but nobody seemed to be having much fun. We hear about two major trends today that seem to contradict each other. One that I hear from a lot of friends who are parents of high school kids is that kids today are almost celibate, right? They're, they're playing video games, mm-hmm. they're scrolling through Instagram, and they're not, we're concerned that they're not connecting adequately. Yeah. On the other hand, there's a supposed trend of hookup culture as this kind of frenzy of bed hopping. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah, I think that both things can be true at once. I mean, one thing is, is that a lot of those surveys only measure intercourse. I see. Penis, vagina, intercourse. So they're not really talking about other behaviors that may be on the rise. But it's a weird simultaneous truth that hookup culture dominates on college and high school campuses and that many kids are less sexually active than in the past. Also, the percentage of students who are hooking up a lot is not that big. It's like 15%. And 25% of students actually never hook up with anybody. That's interesting. So it's not exactly the fall of Rome, but at the same time, there's a perception reality gap among students. So when you what you see in research all the time is that they'll say things like 75% of college students will say they think that everybody else on campus just wants a hookup, but 80% say they themselves would prefer a relationship. So just to define terms, a hookup is kind of a meaning, meaningless word. It can mean anything. And that's intentional because then nobody really knows. It allows people to overestimate what their friends do, but it also creates a situation where you may feel pressure to engage in unwanted acts in order to feel like you're keeping up or gaining experience. But what hookup culture is, is the idea that sexual intimacy precedes emotional intimacy rather than being a product of it, and that casual sex is the pathway to a relationship rather than an exception, even though most hookups don't lead to relationships because part of the rule of the hookup is you're supposed to be somewhat less friendly afterwards than you were beforehand to avoid what kids call catching feelings, which was another phrase that I was obsessed with because it sounds like a disease, right? You don't want to catch chlamydia. You don't want to catch gonorrhea. You don't want to catch feelings. So to avoid catching feelings, you have to be less friendly and you also have to be wasted when you have your hookup. The level of drinking. I mean, I remember we drank a fair amount in my formative years, but not to the degree described in your book. It struck me that perhaps part of what we have is a drinking problem. Yeah, we do. I started calling it the emotional condom because if you're trying to avoid catching a disease, you put on a condom. If you want to avoid catching feelings, you put on your emotional condom. Yeah, that reminds me of the phrase masturbating into someone, which is so kind of dark, isn't it? I mean, this notion of just complete detachment. And I was struck by the boy, he said that as he was beginning, presumably, intercourse in a hookup, he would look at the clock 
to make sure that he lasted long enough because God forbid a text goes around saying it lasted all of three minutes, right? The truth is, is that the hookup is really more about the story than the sex. And as one of the boys said to me, the sex is pretty mediocre. He said, it's like two people having two distinct experiences. There's not a lot of conversation. There's not a lot of eye contact. It's like you're acting vulnerable without being vulnerable with somebody you don't know very well or care about, which he said, it's not a problem, but it's it's kind of odd and not really very fun. So I was so struck by how different the experience was of the African-American boys that you interviewed for the book, who were equally forthcoming and vulnerable. Could you share their experiences? Yeah, you know, actually it was, what was interesting to me was that African-American boys and Asian-American boys ended up being kind of um, flip sides of a coin where white masculinity was sort of controlling the toss. Interesting. So white masculinity was seen as this sort of neutral, invisible thing and this norm. And by comparison, the masculinity and sexuality of African-American boys was simultaneously fetishized and demonized. So on one hand, they were like the coolest dude in the room, they would say, but they were also more likely to be seen as predatory. And it could flip really fast. And they had a lot of anxiety around that. And and it meant a lot of differences in terms of how they thought about issues like consent. And one of the boys, Emmett, that I spent a lot of time with at one point said to me, look, in terms of hookup culture, I'm not going to go party with a bunch of drunk white kids because anything can happen. And if I'm the only black guy in the room, then I'm the only black guy in the room, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You got the sense that the white boys have a lot more room for trial and error. A lot more room, yeah. And then on the other side of that coin, Asian-American boys would talk about having emasculation and asexuality projected onto them. So one guy was telling me about going back and forth with a girl that he met on Tinder. And then she said, hey, you know, we could be friends, but no offense, I don't date Asian guys. And he kind of turned and looked at me and went, how is that no offense? And that actually does bring me around to the conversation about gay boys, because one of the things that was really clear was that, particularly around the consent issue, they were models of how to navigate and negotiate that. And partly because they had to be, Mm -hmm. you know, because who was going to be doing what with whom and how was not necessarily obvious. And they would talk about it in a whole different way. So I, I remember one boy saying to me, I don't know why straight guys are so resistant to this whole consent conversation, because when we talk about consent, it means we're going to be having sex, you know, and that's great. Mm -hmm, And Dan Savage, who's the sex columnist, talks about the four magic words that gay guys use at the beginning of an encounter, which is, what are you into? And yeah, I loved that because it's exactly the kind of open-ended question that we don't tend to ask. And instead, we have this set of pre-prescribed questions that straight guys ask straight girls to which they say yes or no. Mm -hmm. And what are you into rules anything in or anything out and allows you to create an encounter that's meaningful for you. Mm -hmm. And I wrote about that in the book. But then since publishing, and I've been thinking about that harder, Mm. and this speaks to the idea of the dynamic that happens between, you know, the the deficit on both sides and, and what needs to change on both sides. Because I fear that if a straight young man asked a straight young woman, what are you into? Mm-hmm. Her response might well be, I have no earthly idea. Interesting. You said in interviews that this whole business leaves, and I'm quoting, girls cut off from their bodies and boys cut off from their hearts. I think that's such a great observation. And you mentioned in the book that 
85% of college students express unhappiness with hookup culture. Mm -hmm. There seems to be an absence of a feedback loop. Like if, if it's not working, change it. I know. I know. I don't know. I can't. <laughs> That's the big question. Yeah. It's a script. It's the script they're given, right? We enact our scripts without thinking. And what I do find, certainly I found this with girls and sex, for sure. And really with boys and sex, too, in terms of the feedback I get from young men, is that having somebody say, hey, you know, what if you question this a little bit? It changes their perspective mm -hmm. on the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, that is the dominant feedback I get from young people is that they've never thought about it. They think this is what, you know, it's the waters mm -hmm. they swim in. Where do kids learn to behave this way? How much of this is media? Is it YouTube, television? I guess it's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just self-perpetuating. And yeah. I mean, this has been going on for a while. It didn't just suddenly burst onto the scene recently, but it's become more dominant. And I can't say there's one particular place, but certainly that is how young people's experiences represented in every teen movie, right? So one thing we haven't talked about yet is pornography, which is, of course, plays a really important role in the sexuality of young people today, probably more than ever. Yeah. Right? Because it's it's everywhere. Absolutely more than ever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, what what effect do you think this is having on boys? So it, ha it has a profound effect on both boys and girls. And, and I always want to frame this conversation by saying curiosity about sex, as we should know by now, is totally normal. Mm -hmm. Masturbation, you know, great, great for everybody. Everybody should be doing it. But what's different is that there was a paywall dropped on pornography with sites like YouPorn and Pornhub. Mm -hmm. And that allowed anybody with a smartphone to see anything that they could imagine and a lot of things nobody wants to imagine at their fingertips 24-7, anonymously, accessibly, free. And you can argue, you know, is there feminist porn? Is there queer porn? Is there ethical porn? Yeah, but, you know, whatever you think about that, that's behind a paywall. And the kind of porn that young people typically access is porn that shows sex as something men do to women, shows female pleasure as a performance for men. It eroticizes aggression. That is what they're bringing into the bedroom. They watch a lot more porn than their parents, both the boys and the girls, and a lot more hardcore mm -hmm. porn than their parents, research shows. And college boys who regularly use porn are actually more likely to believe that its images are realistic and more likely to want to act out some of its more aggressive acts in the bedroom. And they're less satisfied with their partnered experience, with their own performance, and with their partner's bodies. This seems like the right moment to share my own connection to the porn industry. In 1997, I founded a website with my then-girlfriend called Nerve.com. The tagline was Literate Smut. It was meant to be a progressive, thoughtful online magazine about sex as a cultural phenomenon for both a male and female audience, and it included, scandalously, photos of naked men and women. But I've seen some of the kinds of content that Peggy's talking about, and it's very different. As a dad, I don't want my son's intimate relationships to be shaped by the wrong kinds of porn, or by a hookup culture that sees catching feelings as a bad thing. How can we pass on better sexual values to our boys? Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. If you're enjoying my conversation with Peggy Orenstein, and I hope you are, why not take the next logical step and join us at the Next Big Idea Club, the community of readers and writers that powers this podcast. We feature the best in new nonfiction curated for you by legendary authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink. You'll get exclusive content from top writers, including videos and audio that let you absorb their key ideas in just minutes. And for the next three months, it's absolutely free. Join us at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Meet Mason, a seventh grader in suburban Milwaukee. His body is changing, and he's curious about sex. But his parents never bring it up, and his teacher in his health class just repeats platitudes like, abstinence is best. So one day, he Googles Playboy. And what he finds there makes him even more curious. His parents have put up safe search filters, so he tries misspelling terms like Big Bob's, B-O-double-B. That leads him to more exotic stuff. Stuff he could never have imagined people doing to each other. He wants to see more and more. Flash forward to high school. Mason is spending an hour a day on porn sites, immersed in everything from three ways to bestiality. One day, he's browsing through Pornhub on the basement couch when his father walks in. You shouldn't be watching that, his dad tells him. It's bad for you. But Mason recently found a trove of bookmark porn on his dad's laptop. So he snaps back, don't be a hypocrite. I've seen all the stuff you watch. His dad just grunts and turns on the TV. Mason may have lots of experience with virtual sex, but virtually none with the physical kind. Through his teens, he avoids even kissing because he's afraid he'll do it wrong. When his high school girlfriend offers to go further, he can't get aroused. The episode ends in embarrassed silence. Now Mason is a sophomore in college exploring the social life of a Big Ten university. Last week, he met a young woman he really liked, but two attempts at intercourse sputtered out. The girl is patient and emotionally open. On their third date, Mason has real-life sex for the first time. We really connected, he tells Peggy Orenstein. Whatever nerves affected me before disappeared. So Mason got lucky in more ways than one. But thanks to his sexual miseducation, he'd suffered for years. His teachers had failed him. His parents had failed him. How can we do better? Just about all the boys you talk to, whether gay or straight, black or white, seem to have one thing in common. When it came to sex, they'd gotten very little guidance from grownups. Let's talk first about the parents. What should we be doing? And are we currently kind of failing our children? Yeah, we're kind of opting out. And, and it's understandable. I mean, nobody had these conversations with us. We don't know how to have them. And I know that a lot of us would rather poke ourselves in the eye with a fork 
then talk to our kids about sex and particularly talk to our kids about pornography and, you know, some of these other things. But the thing is, is that we don't have the luxury of not doing it anymore. When we have a climate where we are recognizing the breadth and depth of sexual misconduct, where kids are growing up with porn as a default sex educator, where they're growing up with mainstream media messages, and they are getting no counter narrative to that, particularly boys. I mean, as little as we talk to girls, we talk to boys less. Mm. And it's unsustainable at this point. So we have to learn to do it. And I, I know it's awkward. I know it's hard. But it's also a way to show up for our kids yep. and to start scaffolding towards a different kind of relationship and a more adult relationship. And it's a way to, you know, model having difficult conversations because how are they supposed to know how to do it if we don't show them? And I think one place to start with this conversation is to say, look, you know, I want you to have a really great sex life. I want this to be a source of joy and pleasure for you. And this is not necessarily how you're going to get there. And you need to know why. You know, I mean, ideally, we we start these lessons at a very early age. And I do on my website, which is just my name, PeggyOrnstein.com, there's a, a list of resources where you can sort of pick and choose to help put together your own script on a lot of the topics that we've covered in this interview. But I do lay out a kind of template at the end of the book in terms of the kinds of things that we need to talk about, you know, because it's not just about sex it, and it's not just about consent. It's about masculinity. It's about making gender dynamics visible. It's about what it means to be a good human being in a relationship. It's about all these different things. And, and, and I feel like if we can just, just start somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just start where you can, when you can, and start building the muscle. Because it is kind of like having difficult conversations is like building a muscle. How do you think about the difference in the role of mothers and fathers in these conversations? Well, fathers don't tend to have those conversations. <laughs> and that's something the boys really wanted. A lot of boys said that they wished that they could hear more from their dads or from whoever the adult role model was in their lives, that they needed mm -hmm. more about sex, about intimacy, and also about their father's own regrets. They would talk about that a lot. So sex education has been hugely controversial in the United States, <sighs> and the messages are very, very dramatically from place to place. Is there any consensus about what actually works? Sure. I mean, there are other countries that are doing it and doing it beautifully. And the best example is the Dutch. And they started very much where we did in terms of before the sexual revolution, really only saying sex within marriage is the way that we do this. And then when that became clearly outdated, they just went a totally different direction than we did and really instituted early and frequent education and open education around sex and intimacy. And there's research where they've looked at 400 randomly, so this is with girls, but 400 randomly selected college students at demographically similar American and Dutch universities and looked at their early sexual experiences. And they found that the Dutch, they had everything all over mm. our kids, everything that we say we want. They were more likely to be prepared for their first experience and, and to, mm -hmm. you know, responsibly prepared. They were more likely to be sober. They were more likely to know their partner very well and be able to communicate with their wants and needs. They were more likely to have enjoyed themselves. They had a better body image, you know, all these different mm. things. And when they talked further to the young people, what they found was that Dutch parents, doctors, and teachers talk to kids early and often about sex, intimacy, and the importance of love and trust in their relationships. And what was really interesting to me in those conversations was that it wasn't that they were necessarily 
more comfortable talking to kids about sex, but they talked about it differently. We tend to talk about sex, American parents, mm-hmm. when we do. We emphasize risk and danger. Yep. That's pretty much all we talk about. Yep, sure. And the Dutch talk about balancing responsibility with joy. And that is such a shift. And I have to tell you that of everything I looked at as a parent myself of a teenager, that hit me between the eyes. Because I am pretty dang sure that had I not read that, thought about that, I would have talked to my own child about contraception, disease protection, consent, because I'm very modern. Mm-hmm. And then I would have thought my job was done. Mm-hmm. And now I know it's really not. Yeah. The Dutch have this concept, and Amy Shallot talks a lot about this in a great book called Not Under My Roof. They have this concept called, um, oh, I'm going to mangle Dutch now. So for any Dutch listeners, I apologize, but it's like gezelligheid, something like that. But it means cozy togetherness. And it's the idea that kids grow up in an interdependent relationship with their parents and in the family. Mm -hmm. And that all these issues that we pretend don't exist and don't discuss, like uh, substance use, like sex, get discussed and managed within the family context. And as part of that, they believe that young people are capable of having mature relationships that include sexual contact. And when they have those, they allow sleepovers in their homes. And I always think of that, I shudder a little bit because I have a really tiny house, but nonetheless, <laughs> they do. And it makes a lot of sense when you think, about it. what are we saying? Go to it in the car, go to it in a field. I mean, what, you know, that's not going to be good. So they use that opportunity of negotiating that sleepover to know the partner really well, to make sure that kids are prepared, to make sure that they understand sexual values. And so they talk about it as a soft control over their children's behavior. And it allows for a much better on-ramp into their adult experience. And that, I think if you had asked me 10 years ago, would I ever allow my child's partner to, you know, when she has one, to sleep over, I would have said, absolutely not. You know? Interesting. I see it really differently now. And so despite the small house, you think you might consider it? Absolutely. Hasn't come up, but I would. And meanwhile, the rate of births to teen mothers among the Dutch and the rate of abortions is among the lowest in the world. Teen pregnancy in the U.S. is eight times higher, despite all those teenage sleepovers, or maybe because of them. Yeah, even when you control for demographics, that's true. And yes, because again, it is a way to exercise soft control over your children's behavior. So you are in negotiating the terms of those sleepovers, you're also making sure that there's proper contraception, that there's proper disease protection, that everybody understands values and mutuality and reciprocity. I mean, it just opens a door to, you know, it's, it, in some ways it's like it's like driving, you know, like you wouldn't just give your kid a driver's license and say, okay, I don't want to know what you're doing. Just go and drive, you know? Right. We take really seriously because there's safety issues, there's health issues. We make sure our kids really know what they're doing and feel confident and competent as much as possible when they go out on the road. At the end of the book, you talk about raising our boys to be the men we know they can become. Mm-hmm. All of this, I think of Peggy somewhat myopically as preparation for my ongoing conversations with my 15-year-old son. <laughs> but I love that. And I hope that he reads the book too at some point. And I hope he listens to this podcast. What would you say to him? What should we be aiming for, for our boys? I feel like boys have real motivation now to transform for the better in parents to the rules of psychological development for boys, for sexuality, and that we want to raise them to be able to be the full people that they deserve to be able to be and to be compassionate, to be egalitarian, 
to respect others' boundaries and have their boundaries respected, to be capable of connection, vulnerability, communication, love, to be able to develop and sustain relationships, to be happier, and to see women as peers in the classroom and the boardroom and the bedroom, just to be able to be full selves. And I think very much for girls, so much of the of the movement of feminism was to allow them to expand their opportunities and their potential and their possibilities as human beings so that they could be full selves. And I think it's time now to bring boys into that conversation and allow that for them as well. Well, I sincerely hope that my son has made it this far. And mm-hmm. uh, let and, me know what he thinks. <laughs> uh, if you don't mind, I'll add an extra an extra few words to him. If he does make it this far, which is that I know early adolescence can be deeply frustrating, and you may feel that you're not worthy or that you have desires that are monstrous or shameful, but you're normal. This is a beautiful part of life. And not knowing everything, not being an expert, is part of the beauty of it. And actually, this is a wonderful line you have, Peggy. There's not just one virginity. There are many virginities, right? It's not just about intercourse. It's about all the different experiences. Don't rush it. This is a beautiful movie that you haven't seen yet, where you've only seen the beginning of. Take it slow. Lose all your many virginities. Catch feelings with a butterfly net, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which came up earlier in our conversation. I love that. And it's a journey. And the best thing about journeys is the bonding experience you have with the people next to you. So pay attention to the people next to you and I hope you enjoy it and are kind to everybody along the way. Thank you so much, Peggy, for being with us for this conversation. This was a huge treat. Thank you, Rufus. If you have thoughts about Boys and Sex or any of the other books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation at Next Big Idea Club. It's a lively community of lifelong learners where you can interact with top nonfiction writers and get audio, video, and text summaries of their key ideas. And it's all absolutely free for the next three months. Join us at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. If you're listening on a smartphone, just tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the Next Big Idea Club. Special thanks this week to Peggy Orenstein. Her book, Boys and Sex, is available wherever books are sold, or you can get a copy for free when you join us at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Kenneth Miller, sound designed by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Our series producer is Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.